In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. All right. Welcome, everybody. I decided to do today's podcast a bit earlier in the day. The stock market just closed ahead of a three-day holiday weekend. This is a Labor Day, the official end of summer or unofficial end of summer. A lot of kids are, are going back to school on Tuesday. So I figured I, I do the podcast today instead of on Sunday uh, because people would be in the middle of their holiday weekend. And of course, next Sunday is the beginning of football season. So I'm not going to be doing any more Sunday podcasts for a while. We'll see how this Friday, uh, right after the market close podcast works out. You know, the market, in general, the markets were stronger today, ignoring what I believe to be more bad news, more bad news that is raining on this. Everything is awesome parade. You know, I was listening to guys on CNBC today uh, talking about, you know, this Goldilocks economy, not too hot, not too cold. Everything is perfect. You know, we're, we're returning to a slower growth. A low inflation economy. Um, you know, we're not going to have a recession. We're just going to have slower growth, but that's okay because we're also going to have low inflation. It's going to be just like it was uh, for the 10 years or 12 years following the 2008 financial crisis, right up to COVID. It's the perfect environment. And so you should just buy stocks because, you know, everything is awesome, but nothing is awesome. And the data actually bears this out. The problem is so few people in the mainstream seem to understand this. I mean, maybe uh, they you know, j- just have a, a, a powerful reason uh, not to understand it. Maybe their livelihood depends on them not understanding this. And, and so they don't. But let's take a look at some of the economic data that I think is being misunderstood and ignored. One uh, with the jobs numbers. We got that today. This is the big number that everybody looks forward to throughout the week. You've got the official non-farm payroll report for August. Now, one of the interesting factoids about this report is every single report that we've had has been downwardly revised the following month. It was six for six. And I commented last month that there was no way that was random that if it really was just random 
and that sometimes the government was too high and sometimes they were too low, maybe you'd have three downward revisions and three upward revisions, maybe four and two, you know, five and one would be pushing it. But six out of six, you know, was a pretty good indication that it wasn't random, that uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they were just biased. And they just thought the economy was stronger than it was. And they just assumed jobs were created that weren't. And then when they got more data that kind of contradicted their, their, their rosy uh, vantage point, well, then they revised out. But, you know, the markets get the initial number and it's like, yeah, this is great. It's beat. It's better than expectations. And they ignore the fact that a month later they find out it was actually lower than expectations. Well, the same thing happened again today with the uh, July number. The July number that was originally reported at plus 187,000 was revised down uh, 30,000 to 157,000. So now it's seven in a row where uh, we revised down. Again, try tossing a coin seven times and see if you can get heads all seven times. Right? How many times are you going to have to do that before that happens? It's not easy. So again, this is not random. And I'm willing to bet that next month, today's jobs data, which came in above expectations, is going to be revised below. What everybody was looking for for August was 170,000. And we ended up with 187,000. So it was a beat. But if we end up revising it down next month, it's probably a miss which has been the case with every single jobs report so far in 2023. Now, another, I guess, sign of weakness was a pretty big jump in the unemployment rate of 3.8%. It was 3.5% the prior month, and the expectation was for it to hold steady at 3.5%, yet instead we jumped to 38 so that's a pretty big rise. One reason is more people came into the workforce. Labor force participation rate rose from 62.6 to 62.8. Obviously, a lot of the new entrants weren't able to find jobs. So they're in the labor force, but they're looking for jobs now. They don't have jobs. And so now they count as being unemployed. They didn't count before because they weren't employed before, but they weren't looking. Now that they're looking, they're part of the official number. Private. Uh, payrolls, though, um, rose more than expected, but again, were downwardly revised in the prior month. Manufacturing actually had a decent number. They revised the negative 2,000 from last month to negative four, uh, but this month was a positive 16. Now, we'll see if that holds up. I'm sure it's going to be revised down next month. The question is, will it be revised negative? It might be hard when you're starting from plus 16,000. But also, if you look at the average hourly earnings, that was below estimates, supposed to rise 0.3, we rose 0.2. Uh, and year over year, uh, average hourly earnings were supposed to go from point, uh, were supposed to be 4.4, and instead it was 4.3. That's a year over year. So some people might think, oh, that's good news because you know it's less inflationary pressure. I don't think so. I think it's just more pressure on households because their incomes are not rising nearly as fast as their uh, expenses. In fact, if you look at the personal income and spending numbers that, that came out yesterday, this bears that out because July personal income rose less than expected. I think it was supposed to rise by 0.3 and instead it only rose by 0.2, but spending rose more than expected, 0.8. Now again, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. And so what I think is happening is when spending is up 0.8, again, it's not because Americans are buying more stuff. They're probably buying less stuff. They're just paying more for what they buy so that net they are spending more, but they're spending more and getting less. Now, there is like a deflator uh, in this PCE, right, that's supposed to measure inflation. And according to that number, um, incomes 
are rising more than prices, but the number's wrong when it comes to uh, determining prices because the PCE is the most flawed of all the official inflation measures because it's the most rigged. It has the most hedonics and substitution and all this you know, monkeying around. That's why the Fed likes it, because it's the one that's the least honest about how high inflation is. So if they want to pretend inflation is low, they could point to the, the PCE. But I'm sure if you adjusted the income and spending numbers by actual inflation, not the government's version of inflation, it would show that incomes are growing slower than prices are rising. And that is one of the reasons why Americans have to dip into their savings, which by the way, the savings rate collapsed to three and a half percent, one of the biggest monthly drops in the savings rate on record. This is the lowest the savings rate has been ever since it's shot up because of all the stimulus checks that were mailed out during COVID. So uh, Americans had you know, that, that, that lifeline and they're running out of, out of rope here uh, as the savings pool is uh, getting shallower and shallower and shallower. But this tells you two important things. One is that the uh, consumer is in trouble. You dip into your savings when times are tough. When times are good, your savings are growing. You're adding to your savings, right? You save more when you're flush. If you have extra income, if you're doing great, that's when you add to your savings. When do you tap into your savings? when you need the money, right? It's like you have a rainy day fund. So while the sun is shining, you put deposits into your rainy day fund. And then when it rains, well, now you have a fund that you could withdraw from to get you through until the sun shines again. So the metaphor is when times are good, you sock the money away. And when times are bad, well, you have something to fall back on. Well, if Americans are falling back on their savings in a big, big way, what does that tell you? Times are hard. Contrary to what the Biden administration is spinning, Bidenomics is not working. It is a disaster. It is a failure. And the fact that so many Americans are having to rely on their dwindling uh, uh, real paychecks to put food on the table or pay the rent is more proof that the economy is much weaker than uh, we're being told. Anyway, I, I got more on that topic and a lot more to come. We got a quick commercial, so stick around. We'll be right back. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, so I said there were two things that you should learn from the collapsing savings rate and the increase in, uh, in spending. One was that the consumer is in trouble uh, because he has to use his savings instead of his income to pay for necessities. But number two, and maybe even more important than number one, is that this is further proof that the Fed is losing its inflation fight. Everybody wants to talk about all this success that the Fed has had. It hasn't had any success. It's had a failure. Sure, the headline CPI has come down from nine to three, but now it's going back up. But the core has barely gone down. The core was never nine. I think maybe that was sixes, and now it's fives. I mean, we've had hardly any relief there. But if you understand the dynamic, and I mentioned this again in the last podcast, and Powell himself uh, admitted this in his last press conference. 
The purpose of the rate hikes, the way the rate hikes are going to reduce inflation is by reducing aggregate demand, meaning higher interest rates are going to cause consumers to spend less and save more, right? Because, oh, interest is high. Let me put my money in the bank and earn some interest uh, instead of spending it. And, oh, and if I use my credit card, other rates are going to be higher. Or if I borrow money to buy a car, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop buying things because it costs me too much money to borrow. Uh, instead, I'm going to save and I'm going to, I'm going to get these uh, big returns on my savings. None of that is happening. Well, first of all, the banks haven't raised their rates much because they're broke. They, don't, they can't afford to. Yes, you can take your money out of a bank and you can put it in a money market. But most people realize that 5% on a money market doesn't cut it that the actual rate of inflation is more than 5%. So 5% isn't enough. You have to pay people more than the inflation rate to get them to save. So if they're worried about prices going up 10%, why are they going to save? They're just going to buy stuff now. Why wait and pay 10% more? Even if you get 5% while you're waiting, you're still losing out. And consumers are continuing to borrow. The savings rate again, is the lowest it's been since uh, the COVID stimulus money. How many rate hikes have we had since then? Pretty much all of them, right? The Fed has raised interest rates from zero to five and a half percent. And people have less savings now than they did when rates were at zero. The savings rate is lower. It's not working. People have more debt. The government has more debt. Budget deficits are bigger today with rates at five and a half than they were when rates were at zero. The Fed has accomplished nothing. They're no closer to their goal of 2% inflation than when they began. And we're almost done with the rate hikes. I mean, nobody is talking about 7%, 8% uh, Fed funds. They're talking maybe five and three quarters. Oh my God, is it possible we can go to six? Oh, that would be the absolute high, right? Well, that's nothing. I mean, we're almost there. Well, if we haven't gotten rid of inflation going from zero to five and a half, what prayer do we have that going from five and a half to six is going to do the trick? It's not. In fact, I've been talking about oil prices on this uh, podcast for a long time. I've been very, very bullish. And what happened this week, we had a seven and a half percent rise in the price of oil. Oil closed at almost $86 a barrel. Today, this is the highest, I think, since November of last year when we were coming down, you know, from we had been over 100. So this is the highest since then. But oil prices are now up almost 34 percent since they're low in March. We're up, what, four, four to five percent since the last CPI three weeks ago. And everybody was like, oh, great. Inflation's coming down. Well, if you look in the rearview mirror, maybe, but look in the in the windshield, inflation is going up. How is it that oil prices are up 34% since March? Right? How is that uh, low inflation? We're up better than what in the last month, maybe, you know, or three months, more than 20%, just just then, or 20, you know, not counting today's increase. Clearly, we're in a higher inflation environment. The 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 uh, the benefits of falling oil prices have already been uh, delivered. Those are in prior CPIs. That's done. Oil prices are going up from here rather sharply, especially once the dollar starts to fall, which hasn't happened. In fact, the dollar rose today. Dollar index was very strong today. Ended up being positive on the week. It was negative on the week until today. We had a, a 0.628 rise, 104 0.247 is where we finished the week on the dollar index. I think it was falling bonds. Uh, bond yields managed to uh, go down a bit on the week, but uh, they rose quite a bit today. So overall, bonds up slightly on the week, yields down. But uh, bonds uh, very weak today, which, again, I think is a negative sign. That's the other market I'm very bearish on. Uh, bonds, bonds down, oil up, and that trend is continuing. And that is a trend that the markets are ignoring stock market investors at their own peril, because all of this is a negative sign for the stock market. I mean, other than oil stocks, uh, it, it's a negative. 
It's going to be a drain on the economy. It means that inflation is higher, not lower. And so the Fed either has to fight harder or surrender. Uh, but either way, this is this is bad news. Investors didn't buy gold today. I mean, gold was flat on the day. Gold stocks were down, although on the week they were up. Gold was up on the week uh, about 20 bucks. Uh, so, you know, we, we although we ended below 1950, we didn't, couldn't quite get above that level. I think we're at about uh, 1930-ish. Let me take a look at where uh, where gold ended up closing today. I'm not even sure if it's totally settled, but um, both gold and silver prices were rising. But if if investors really understood what was going on, they'd be buying the gold and silver a lot more. Yeah, we just below $1,940 an ounce. We held that support below $1,900, though, very, very well. And you know, next time we get above 2,000, who knows, maybe we'll be above 2,000 for good based on the economic data. You know, also on the, the jobs front, I wanted to mention too that we got a really weak number on Thursday. This is yesterday before we got the jobs numbers from Challenger. They announced these monthly job uh, layoffs and it was 75,000 uh, layoffs. Uh, the prior month was only 23,000. So that's a big number, maybe the 30,000 or so uh, people from uh, Yellow, the trucking company that went bankrupt, maybe they're in there. But for some reason, they didn't show up in the weekly unemployment numbers. They were still uh, benign. I don't know what happened, why none of those uh, workers were filing unemployment, because if they did, it would have showed up in, uh, in those numbers somehow. But again, jobs are being lost. Purchasing power is being destroyed. You know, we had a good example of that today. And I've been warning about this exact thing on this podcast. It's another thing that I've been out in front on. But uh, there was news today from Spectrum Cable, which is the nation's second largest cable TV company. And so Spectrum basically dropped the Disney Channel, uh, ESPN, uh, I forget other, uh, some ABC stations that would just drop. So if you are, you're, you're paying for this cable company and you want to watch Disney Channel or ABC, they're not there anymore. And the reason is because Disney or ABC want these cable companies to pay for their uh, uh, service, to carry their, 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 their content. Well, they've been raising their prices like everybody else, right? Inflation is causing everybody to raise their prices. The price of everything is going up. I mean, I constantly get... Uh, emails uh, from services that I get announcing price hikes. None of that has stopped, right? I don't know where the Fed is thinking that inflation is coming down because uh, there's, it's been relentless in the fees that I noticed personally that continue to go up. So Disney is telling Spectrum, hey, you got to pay more uh, if you want our service. Well, here's the problem. Spectrum's customers can't afford it. They're, they're dropping their cable because the bill is too high. So how is Spectrum gonna pay more money to Disney or ABC if it's it's losing subscribers? And if they have to raise their prices to cover the higher costs of this content, they're gonna lose even more subscribers. So they're basically saying, you know what? We're just not gonna carry your content anymore. And we're just gonna provide our customers a lower quality service instead of raising their price, or maybe they're gonna raise their price too, right? This is like the shrinkflation. It's like the uh, food company putting less stuff in the, the box. The cable company is putting less content in their, in their package because it would cost more money to fill it up with the same amount of, of, of goods. This is all a byproduct of inflation. And I also was warning about this when it comes to these type of stocks, which is why we don't really own them. The companies that are selling discretionary things, that are relying on the consumer, that are relying on advertising, I've been saying these companies are in a lot of trouble. You know, Disney, I think, hit a nine-year low today. It was down, I mean, not as much as some of these other companies. I watched uh, Warner Brothers was down about 12% on the day on this news. I don't even think Warner Brothers you know, was necessarily directly impacted, but, you know, they have, they, it just shows what's happening in their industry, the cable industry. And of course it is 
very competitive now. There's so many streaming services. Everybody is competing for the same dollar this, from the same consumer who is broke because all these consumers who would consume this content are spending more of their money consuming food, consuming energy, paying rent, paying insurance. So they don't have a lot of money left over, yet there's so many companies that are vying for that shrinking pie. And so this is a sign of the weakness in the economy as all of this stuff that was built on low interest rates and debt and excess consumption is collapsing. We got one more commercial, so uh, stick around and uh, I'll be right back to finish up the podcast. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, before I forget, I, I need to, I want to remind everybody that I'm, or tell everybody, maybe not a reminder, inform everybody that uh, immediately following today's podcast, or at I think five o'clock Eastern, whichever comes first or last, <laughs> I'm going to be doing the Q&A uh, for the Shift Premium members. So if you're not currently a member and you want to participate, go to shiftradio.com slash premium to sign up. And you can ask me a question or you could just listen as I answer questions that other premium members are asking. Anyway, I want to get back and look at some more of the data that came out during the week, especially some of the jobs data. It's not just the uh, unemployment numbers that we got or the non-farm payroll that came out earlier today. But on Wednesday, we got the jolts. And we always get these jolts reports uh, the same week that we get the job numbers, and they come out on, on a Wednesday. Job numbers will come out on the Friday. And this was another very weak number relative to expectations, and the, the direction is, is clear. So the July number was supposed to come out at 909,559,000 job openings. And that would have been a slight decrease from the 9.582 million from the prior month. Well, they revised down the prior month all the way down to 9.165 million. And the July number came out all the way down to 8.827 million. This is one of the lowest jolts numbers we've had in, in, in some time. I, I, I didn't look it up, but I know it's been a long time. Uh, since we've had a number this low. But what's more important, not only are the number of job openings falling, the number of unemployed is rising. So that's a dangerous trend because the unemployed, well, they need job openings to get jobs. Uh, right now, there's still more job openings than there are unemployed workers looking to fill them. Now, the problem is a lot of these unemployed workers don't have the skills to fill these jobs. We have a skills deficit, and that is a big problem for American companies that they want to hire people, but they, they don't exist uh, You know uh, that have the skills. Uh, but certainly as the number of job openings collapse and you have more and more un, unemployed people, eventually those numbers are going to cross and you're going to have more unemployed people than there are job openings. That's coming. You know, we're still a ways away, but we can get there very quickly. Uh, especially if the pace of layoffs starts to increase and if businesses adopt a more pessimistic outlook on the economy. Because as businessmen, entrepreneurs, if they begin to have a more realistically negative outlook, 
they're not going to want to hire as many people. I mean, they may not want to even retain the people they have now. So it's possible that some companies that are now hiring workers and have open positions will not only close those openings, but they'll start firing some of the employees they already have. So this thing can turn very sharply. Uh, and you know, again, this is all indicative of uh, stagflation, of a weakening economy with rising prices. You know, we also got the, the ADP number that came out below estimates as opposed to the, the non-farm payroll. But again, it's the government numbers that we keep getting downward revisions on. So I'm sure by next month, we'll find out that this month was a miss, just like the prior seven months. But ADP was supposed to come out at 200,000. It came out at 177,000, so a little bit above. We got the GDP numbers also this week for the second quarter. Now, the third quarter is supposed to be a big number according to the Atlanta Fed, right? That's up, you know, five and a half, six, whatever that is. I haven't checked it in the last few days. But um, the um, second quarter was supposed to be 2.4. That was the estimate. That was, you know, the prior estimate. The consensus was that it would stay at 2.4, and instead it came down to 2.1. So uh, not as much growth as was originally anticipated. Pretty much all the other data, though, was still weak. Corporate profits particularly weak. On the this is the preliminary estimate for the second quarter. Corporate profits down 9.4 percent. That's a big move. Um, the prior quarter they were down 5.1 percent. So stocks are up, but profits are down. Why? And interest rates are rising. Rising rates and falling profits. That's bad for stocks. Investors, stock market investors, are living in a delusion, uh, bidding up. Uh, these stock prices. Meanwhile, all the manufacturing numbers, some of them came out less weak than expected, but they were still weak. Like the PMIs, manufacturing, uh, August was supposed to come out at 47. It came out at 47.9. Okay. But anything below 50 indicates contraction, recession. ISM manufacturing for August, supposed to be 46.8, came out at 47.6. Okay. It was a beat but it's still well below 50, more evidence that the economy is contracting. I can't even remember the last time that number was above 50. Um, construction spending, that ended up being a little bit stronger than expected. It was supposed to be up 0.5, it was up 0.7. But again, this is not because we're, there's more construction. It's because it's costing more to build less. That is really what's going on. Then finally, another number I got here, the Dallas Fed manufacturing for August, that was supposed to be minus 21, and it was minus 17.2. Again, it's a negative number. It's bad. It was slightly less bad than expected, but the news is bad. And of course, the trade deficit came out this month in complete silence. Nobody pays attention to the trade deficit. We got, uh, this is the goods deficit. We used to call this the merchandise trade deficit. And I'm you know, old enough to remember when the merchandise trade deficit was like the big number. Nobody cared about the jobs numbers uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. People cared about the merchandise trade deficit. That, 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 again, that was one of the numbers that precipitated the 1987 stock market crash was because the trade deficit was so big, scared the hell out of the market because investors understood what a big trade deficit means. Now, they don't understand it anymore, so they don't give a damn. But the trade deficit was $91.2 billion. And I still remember the trade deficit that was so big that it you know, sent the market into a tailspin, and it was $17 billion. Now, yeah, there's been a lot of inflation since then, but $91.2 billion in one month? I mean, the consensus was $90.8 billion, so it was a little worse. And in fact, they went back to the prior month and made that one worse, too. That was 878 and it went up to minus 88.8. And the reason the trade deficit expanded on the month was because uh, imports grew by point by 1.9%, while exports only grew by 1.5. So we had a bigger growth in our imports. And this, of course, is going to really accelerate now with uh, oil prices uh, coming up. Not only does it cost more to buy stuff, but it costs more to bring it in, right? because the shipping costs are a big function 
of um of 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 the of the energy prices. But the the the, the trade data I think is a is a much better uh benchmark of the economy than just looking at jobs. I mean, this is a real scoreboard. How is how is the nation looking? Because the whole point of hiring people is to be productive and make stuff. So rather than looking at how many people we're hiring, just look at the trade deficit. Are we making more than we consume or are we consuming more than we make? And the deficit shows that the economy is running in the red. So all these jobs that we're creating are meaningless in that they're not showing up in more production. We're not a stronger economy because we created these jobs. Because despite the fact that we created these jobs, the trade deficit went up. So we became more dependent on the rest of the world. The economy became less productive despite the fact that more people are pitching in. So this is a more important, I think, metric on the true health of the U.S. economy. And of course, if you measure the health of the U.S. economy by our trade deficit, you know, we're, we're terminally ill. In fact, you, you got to look at the twin deficits. That was another, you know, watchword back in the 1980s and 1990s. It was the combination of the budget deficits and the trade deficits. You add the two together and you get the twin deficits. And when those are rising, that is a problem for the bond market. It's a problem for the stock market, problem for the economy. It's just a big problem. Well, the problem has never been bigger than it is right now because we have record high uh, trade deficits and we also have record high budget deficits. And nobody seems to care. Now, I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing the bond market sell off. Investors are beginning to care, right? These so-called bond market vigilantes, they're still kind of asleep, but maybe they're a little groggy. They're, they're, they're just starting to wake up. And so uh, bond prices are falling. But when they finally, you know, have full consciousness and, you know, survey uh, the landscape, they're going to be far more aggressive in the selling of bonds. I mean, bonds have a long way to drop. As I've been saying, all these bottom pickers in the bond market uh, who have been saying, oh, snap up these treasury bond yields. You know, they're they're 4.2%. That's mighty tasty. Yeah, you're going to have a sour taste in your mouth if you bite on that. Look, if you look at these 30-year bonds that are yielding 4.2%, look at the the tip break-evens, right? Because you could buy a tip, 30-year treasury uh, inflation protected, which if you are, if you are going to buy a 30-year bond, which I would not do you know, with, with, with your money, let alone my own, right? But if you're going to do that, you got to buy the tips because I think the tips are cheap. Now, I, I don't trust the government to be honest about the CPI, right? I always said that investing in tips is like, you know, hiring the, the fox to guard your hen house. I don't want, I want to guard my hen house myself if I, if I need those hens. So I'd rather have gold or, 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 you know, income producing foreign stocks than take the government's word that they're going to be honest about the inflation rate to pay me on my tips. But if you look at the, the break evens, it's only about 2%. So if inflation ends up being more than two, two and a quarter percent over the next 30 years, you're a winner in tips, right? Because you're only paying for about 2% inflation because that's the difference between, or the yield difference between if I buy a tip versus if I buy a treasury. Because what happens is when you buy the tip, you get the coupon, but you get extra. The government gives you a little bit more to break you even on inflation. Now, of course, I don't even want to break even. I mean, I don't know what's so exciting about breaking even. Because the tips are designed to make sure that uh, your principal is exactly where it started, adjusted for inflation. So over 30 years, you just get your money back. You don't make a profit. You just get your money back. Now, your profit was your coupon. So you got to make 2% a year for 30 years while you're waiting to break even. That doesn't sound like a very enticing investment to me. But that one is better than just buying regular treasuries and getting 4% and taking your chances. Because if you buy a tip and inflation ends up being 10% one year, you get your 2% coupon and then the government gives you an extra 8%. So you made 10%. But in a regular treasury, you're just SOL. You got four, but you actually lost six because inflation was 10.
but you can look at what investors are thinking about inflation by looking at the break-evens. At, at what inflation rate would we break even on, on a tip versus a regular treasury? And I forget the exact number, but it's in the low twos. So that means that bond investors are looking at these massive budget deficits, these massive trade deficits, you know, you know, spending, you know, reckless as far as the eye can see, you know, a, a ticking time bomb because the debts are going to get bigger. As I said, interest on the national debt, which is now bigger than national defense, uh, by next year, by the end of next year, it'll probably be bigger than Social Security, and then by the following year, bigger than Medicare. It's going to be $2 trillion, $3 trillion a year. I mean, this is the trajectory that we're on. There's no way we can make it 30 years with 2% inflation. Either we're going to default on these bonds, right? Which, of course, that's not priced in. The only way the U.S. government is not going to default on treasuries in on a 30-year duration, whether it's tips or regular ones, the only way they're not going to default is if there's massive inflation. That's the only way out. The Fed is going to have to print a lot of money and buy up those bonds, which means the inflation rate has to be much higher than 2%. Because if it's not much higher than 2%, the government's going to default and you're not going to get your money back anyway. So either way, treasury bonds should be pricing that in. They should either be pricing in default risk, which they're not, or high inflation risk, which they're not. So they're some of the most overvalued assets on the planet. But it's amazing that these bond investors can think that inflation is going to stay at 2% for another 30 years. I mean, what are these guys smoking to be that crazy? Now, to me, it can't be. I mean, there, there's got to be some other reason that these bonds are being bought. They can't be bought by any rational uh, human who is thinking about the situation. Nobody is going to decide to clip these coupons for 30 years. I mean, nobody could be that dumb, right? Central banks, maybe, you know. Uh, but, you know, there's maybe insurance companies or pensions or somebody who's somehow being forced or some of these money managers that have these 60-40 portfolios and they have these cookie-cutter strategies and they feel that, well, we have to, like, check these boxes. And so you're 70 years old and you have to have this money in bonds. And so we're going to buy them. doesn't matter that they're overpriced. We don't care. We just got to make sure we check that box, right? I don't want to check a box if that's the idiot box. I want to just leave that box open. And, and look for something else. But that's not the mindset of the typical uh, manager. But at some point, reality is going to set in on the bond market uh, and bond prices are going to tank uh, one way or the other. Inflation doesn't have a prayer of being 2% over the next 30 years. I mean, if there's going to be a two, it's either going to be because it follows a one, meaning 12, or maybe it's the beginning of a larger number like 20. Right. That's where you're going to see a two in the inflation rate. It's not going to be just zero, you know, two, uh, you know, a single digit number. It's just impossible. Yet that is what um, the, the markets are expecting. And that is what they're pricing in. Now, I wanted to talk about uh, a story I read regarding the German government. I don't want people to think, you know, I, I, I always pick on the U.S. government because, you know, we don't have a monopoly on, on stupidity in the U.S. government. I mean, that's pretty much uh, a trait that's, that's shared universally in governments, right? And especially in the democracies, right? That, because these are the guys that have to get elected. And so they have to do things that the voters like. But generally what the voters like is bad economics, but the voters don't understand that, right? They, you know, I mean, if economists, if people that have PhDs in economics, don't understand economics. How do you expect, you know, some bus driver to understand economics who, you know, dropped out of high school, right? Not to insult bus drivers, but you know, you get my point, right? So they don't, people don't know this, they don't get it. Uh, and, and they think that the people in Washington know more than they do. And they probably know even less. Uh, Cause the, the, the reality is, I think most people have more common sense about economics who are driving buses, right? And who dropped out of high school than uh, people who are uh, teaching the subject at universities or who have economists in their title of some job uh, because they were brainwashed. And so every bit of common sense, you know, was wrung out of their head 
uh, by their, their Keynesian professor. So they actually graduate knowing less real economics than when they first enrolled. So it's a dumbing down process, right? Not really an education. Um, but anyway, so getting back to um, Germany. So inflation is a problem in Germany, just like I warned it would be years and years ago. Uh, and I was amazed that the Bundesbank uh, was sitting back uh, while Draghi uh, was printing all this money, claiming that we didn't have enough inflation. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, he is Italian and the Italians had lousy monetary policy. Anybody remember the lira? You know how many lira you needed for a dollar? I don't even remember 10,000, whatever it was. I mean, they were huge numbers. That was because there was so much inflation in Italy. Why would you want the Italians running your central bank? I mean, if you want them to cook your dinner or, you know, make some wine or something, yeah, the Italians are, you know, you want someone to design a nice suit of clothes. Yeah, hire the Italians. but. Not for banking, not for central banking. They did a lousy job. And, you know, I was warning about this. And, of course, now the Germans are having to deal with the consequences. So what are these German politicians doing, right? These They were these staunch, you know, hard money guys, you know, because they remembered Weimar Republic, although nobody alive today remembers the Weimar Republic. I mean, there were still people in the 70s, 80s that, that remembered it, right? Uh, so they're they're all dead now, and so their children, you know, maybe don't care as much about the hyperinflation of uh, Weimar uh, Germany. But they've got inflation, and one place where it's rearing its head is in rents. So rents are really rising in in, in Germany, like they are all over the place. But the German renters, who are also voters, and you have you know a lot more renters there. I think fewer people own their homes in Germany as a percentage because they they haven't subsidized home ownership to the degree that that we did in America. So you, you don't have as many people owning. You have a higher percentage of the population that that rent. And so that's more voters who are pissed off that their rents are going up. And so what are these geniuses in Germany? What are they proposing? Uh, how are they proposing to deal with this? You know, they like to say rent inflation. But again, I whenever I hear that, rent inflation, food inflation, energy inflation, that's that's all government propaganda words. There there is no such thing as rent inflation. There's no such thing as food inflation uh or or, or energy inflation. Food prices go up, energy prices go up, rents go up because of inflation. They are a consequence of inflation. They don't cause inflation, they are caused by inflation. Inflation is the expansion of the money supply. It, you're inflating the money supply. When you do that, money loses value. When money loses value, prices go up. When you fall into the trap of saying food inflation, energy inflation, you're letting the Fed off the hook. You're letting the government off the hook. You're pretending that inflation is caused by farmers, that it's caused by landlords, that it's caused by the oil companies. It's not. They are reacting to the inflation that is caused by government. So. Why are rents rising in Germany? Because of the inflation created by the ECB that the German government allowed to happen. They devalued the euro uh, and, and, and construction costs, utilities, everything is going up. And so rents are going up and there's a shortage of housing. And that's another reason that rents are going up because you have too many people looking for, for housing that doesn't exist. And so supply and demand, you bid up prices. And so what they are proposing in uh, in Germany is a three-year freeze on, um, on rents. I think it was three years. That's, that's a form of price control. Now, I've been saying on this podcast, price controls are coming. They're coming to the United States. Well, now they're coming to Germany, but if, if they pass this harebrained scheme. But what is this going to do? Right. So let's say you freeze rents. That's not going to stop inflation. That's not going to stop landlords from experiencing rising costs. And if they can't pass their costs on to their tenants, what are they going to do? You know, uh, because they're still going to have these costs. Well, they're going to have to find ways around it. They're going to have to stop paying for certain things or maybe they, they, they have to cancel the gardener or they, they can't afford to make some repairs that they would have uh, otherwise made. You know, they kind of just, you know, let the place run down. 
Uh, but the tenants aren't going to complain because, you know, their rent didn't get raised. So the paint is chipping off the walls, but they have to live with that because, you know, they didn't get a rent hike. Uh, but you're, you're, you're lowering the quality of the housing stock. But importantly, and maybe more importantly, if you have a housing shortage, if there's not enough housing, and that is the reason that rents are rising, if you freeze rents, what are you going to do? You're going to freeze home construction. You're going to stop new supply from coming on the market. And so eventually, when the freeze is removed, you have all this pent up you know, demand that has been suppressed. And now rents are really going to go up. They're going to go up even more than they would have gone up had you never froze them. Because had you not frozen them, more supply would have come on the market. You see these idiots uh, in government, although, again, they might not be idiots. They may be smart enough to count the votes. And they know that they're going to lose votes if they do the right thing. And so they do the dumb thing because the dumb thing is what keeps them in office, which is the inherent flaw in, in, in democracy. But the way the free market is supposed to work, if there's not enough of something, the price goes up. Rising prices is the cure for the problem of having a shortage of something. Because what happens when the price goes up? Well, two things happen. The buyers cut back. Well, so if rents go way up, how would buyers cut back on rent? Well, they would take on roommates. Instead of having my own apartment, I, I get a buddy and, and we share one, right? So people demand less of the product. So that helps free up some housing because now you don't have one person taking up the entire apartment. You have two people sharing an apartment, right? So, so demand can go away. But the other thing that happens when prices go up is builders want to build. Hey, look at how much rents are. Let me build some rental housing because there's all this rent. People who might not have, uh, or let's say I own a home and rents are really soaring. Hey, I got an extra bedroom that I'm not using. Let me rent it out, right? They're, they're, if the rents were low, I don't want somebody in my house, right? I, you know, but if rents really are up and I can get a lot more money renting out that spare room, I'm going to add that spare room to the housing stock. So the free market adjusts supply and demand. The mechanism for that adjustment is price. Now, when the government stops that mechanism, if the government stops prices from going up, it stops the market from functioning. So if the problem is a shortage, higher price would solve the problem by eliminating the shortage. But if you stop prices from going up and you stop those signals from being sent, you end up exacerbating the shortage, which is exactly what the Germans are going to do. They are going to worsen the very problem they are trying to solve, which is government policy in a nutshell. Every problem that the government wants to solve, it makes worse. The solution adds to the problem. The biggest irony of it is most of the problems the government wants to solve, it created. It created the problem in the first place, and then it comes up with a solution, and that solution exacerbates the problem that it created. Anyway, I wanted to find uh, uh, end the podcast by talking about another problem that this one wasn't created by government, it was created by the free market, and that is Bitcoin. I uh, haven't spoken too much about Bitcoin uh, recently, but it was in the news, uh, and it went on a, a roller coaster ride uh, or a pump and dump, the way, you know, however you want to describe it. And this is classic, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, price action. But anyway, earlier in the week, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which I talk a lot about on this podcast, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust won a lawsuit with the SEC because the SEC was not letting Grayscale um, convert their, their trust into an ETF. And the discount was down like 40% uh, discount to NAV. For, you know, for a long time, it was at a premium, 20, 30% premium. I was one of the few people out there forecasting that that premium would eventually go to a big discount. And I was absolutely right on, 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 on that forecast. Um, but people have been buying it recently because if the uh, Grayscale Trust can convert to an ETF, a spot ETF, the discount will go away. And, and so even now, the discount's around 20%. You know, it narrowed quite a bit on this news because uh, Grayscale won. They didn't win the right to be an ETF, but they 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 initially, I think they lost on a summary judgment and the judge threw that out. So they can now move forward with their attempts to, to get the SEC 
to approve them because I think the court ruled that they, that, that they were being uh, arbitrary. You know, why approve a futures ETF and then deny a spot ETF? But so this made it, this court ruling cleared the way to make it more likely. It's not a, a sure thing, but it's more likely than it was before that uh, the Grayscale GBTC will become a, uh, an ETF. And that means that everybody who owns shares can now get out at NAV. So if the price of Bitcoin stays where it is and you buy the GBTC trust now and it becomes an ETF, you can make about a 25% gain. Uh, and so it means if, if you have Bitcoin now, you can just sell your Bitcoin and then buy the Grayscale Trust. And if it becomes an ETF, you end up with 25% more Bitcoin because it takes a 25% rally to close a 20% uh, gap to NAV. The risk, of course, is that you know they don't become an ETF and the, and the discount gets bigger because there's a 2% a year management fee if you own Grayscale. If you just own Bitcoin, there is no management fee. So you eventually lose all your money if you hold your money long enough in uh, the Grayscale Trust. Now, you're going to lose all your money anyway if you stay in Bitcoin long enough. So I guess it's six of one, half dozen of the other. But as soon as this announcement came out, Bitcoin prices spiked. They were about 26,000 um, before the news. And uh, when the news happened, we, we rose about a thousand or Bitcoin rose a thousand, maybe 1500 points. Let me see what the highest, you know, it got above 27,000. Not sure how much higher looking at some of these prices, 27,200, um, 27,500. So let's say 27, so 1500 point rise in Bitcoin from 26,000 to 27,000 immediately, like very few trades. It just went straight up and then it kind of stayed at that high price all day. And that's where all the transactions took place. And so what happened is when this so-called good news came out, right? Because they think this is good news. They're saying, oh, CNBC is, this is great. This shows more adoption of Bitcoin. This is not adoption of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was supposed to be a digital currency. Adoption would be more people using Bitcoin as a mean of exchange. It would be more companies uh, using Bitcoin, you know, to, to sell their products or pay their workers. That's not happening. There's no adoption whatsoever. All that's happening is there might be another way to gamble on your Bitcoin. If more people can come up with ETFs, that's just one more way to gamble with Bitcoin. I mean, just because there's more casinos where you can gamble doesn't mean it's adoption. Nobody is adopting it for anything. They're speculating with it. But they hype all this up and the price just shoots right up. All right, so as soon as the news comes out, basically, the market went from 26,000 to over 27,000. And then for about 24 hours, a bunch of suckers paid 27 to 27,500 to buy their Bitcoin. Who sold it to them? The people that pushed the price up $1,500 of Bitcoin. They pumped it up and then they spent the entire day dumping, right? They were slowly selling out their coins to these FOMO buyers. Because what happens with the FOMO buyers is then that's fear of missing out. They see Bitcoin go from 26,000 to 27 and a half thousand in, in, in a minute. And they're like, oh my God, this is liftoff. We're going to the moon. Let's go. This is it. 1,000, here we come. Their laser beams are on their eyes, ready to go. And so they buy. Meanwhile, the smart money is selling, 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 selling. And then eventually the FOMO money is gone. And then there's nobody left to buy. And the bottom drops out of the market. And earlier today, we were back at around 25,500, 25,600. Right now we're at 25,760. We're lower than we were. The market today is lower than it was prior to that good news coming out. So it was a classic pump and dump. The lemmings rushed into the market and, and, and bought, and now they're holding the bag. Uh, I still think we have a major collapse coming uh, with Bitcoin and the rest of uh, the altcoins. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, but anyway, I think that's it for uh, the, the podcast. Again, remind everybody after the podcast is over, I'm going to be doing uh, the Q&A. So shift premium, shiftradio.com slash premium. Uh, to everybody else, uh, have a very happy uh, Labor Day. 
if you're smart, you'll take some time out of your Labor Day, maybe call up Shift Gold. They're going to be working. These guys are hard workers. They'll be there. Somebody will be there every day over the, the three-day weekend. In fact, on Monday, while we're all uh, vacationing on the beach, if we can afford to get there, uh, people around the world are trading. It's not a holiday. And who knows? Maybe that's going to be the day that gold really spikes. So it might make sense to, to buy some of your gold over the weekend while everybody else is uh, just enjoying uh, uh, you know, the, they're, they're the, the last days of summer. Uh, but anyway, and again, uh, contact uh, the reps not to be left out, although I doubt these guys will be working on the weekends because they kind of keep the U.S. market hours. But the uh, Euro-Pacific uh, Asset Management team at Europac.com. Anyway, again, have a happy uh, holiday weekend, and I'll see everybody again next week.